and take a little deeper thought. And the first time I ever heard that phrase, things that make you go, hmm, was a guy named Arsenio Hall. He, uh, aside from playing opposite Eddie Murphy in a few funny movies, he had a talk show for a while. And for whatever reason, as a kid, I enjoyed this. Sometimes I didn't understand what was intriguing about it. Other times I thought it was very funny. But what it amounted to was you stopped and you had to think about what someone said. I was playing poker last night with Nick and his father. And I noticed something. Nick's father listens intently to every word that comes out of Nick's mouth. And he laughed and he said, you know, Nick, sometimes I don't get it right away, but I am following you. <laughs> I felt like there was an instant camaraderie with uh, Randy and I because I also follow slightly behind Nick. His mind moves at a very rapid pace, but he makes you think. He's got a dry wit that uh, makes you think. We enjoy this in life many times. Well, you need to know that James says a man that hears the word and does not do what it says is like someone who looks into a mirror and walks away forgetting what they look like. This was an obvious allusion to the temple worship where you walked up to a bronze basin that uh, you had just had blood splattered in your face, innocent blood, for your benefit, and you walked up to this basin and you looked into it and they called it a mirror because the bottom was shining. And he said, when we hear the word, it is supposed to speak to us like looking into that mirror. It's supposed to show us our guilt. It's supposed to show us our redemption. It's supposed to show us our future and have us reflect upon our past. And as I began to think about that, I realized how many things in God's word you cannot just grab at first grasp. I mean, you hear statements and you go, what? What did he say? You ever have a double take and you have to read it again? Yes. I'll never forget, I was listening to the Bible on tape. I, I do that a lot. And this was the early 90s, so it really was tapes. And uh, I was in a uh, demo vehicle for uh, a, a Chevrolet dealer. And uh, I don't know, I was forced to drive it faster than... Uh, <laughs> Well, I was told we were not under the law. So I was driving faster than um, maybe the posted speed limit. And uh, uh, there were these beautiful uh, Christmas lights that were behind me. And uh, I pulled over, and because I was distracted for a moment, I heard Ezekiel say that uh, we were going to feast on the flesh of kings. That's what I thought he said. And I was perplexed by that. He's talking about the birds of the air in an Armageddon setting. But the distraction caused me to miss what he said at first glance. Many things in the Word require you to take multiple glances. Like it's a 70-sided gem, and you have to turn it in the light of God's revelation and look at it different ways at different times, and there is always something living about it. Always something that will speak to you. I wanted to talk to you about a few of those things. And this morning, as we begin to do this, a lot of what is in the Word that is this way are paradoxes things that just seem like they're blatant contradictions. Others don't really meet the definition of a paradox. They're more of a just irony. But whatever the case, they're things that ought to stop and make us go, hmm. What really set my mind on this track, though, there's a guy named Epimen Epimenendez, who I will call Epimedes from here on out because I can't say his name. See, we Americans do that. 
somebody's name is Miriam in the Bible, we just change it to Mary. The guy's name is Yeshua, to us he's Jesus. We have the authority to do this. Not really, but we do it. So his name's Epimedes from here on out. Paul quotes him, quotes him regularly in several letters. And he is a Greek poet. There is uh, no indication that this man was ever a true follower of Yahweh God. And yet Paul finds wisdom in his literature. The God that we serve is not intimidated by us claiming truth wherever we find it. If a communist leader speaks and what he says is true, that's not an endorsement of communism. It's an endorsement of truth and God is the author of all yes. truth. One of the things that this man said, Paul quotes in the book of Titus. He says, all Cretans are liars. This was an interesting statement, something that was debated among Greeks for 600 years before Paul quoted it. Uh, Epimedes lived in 6th century BC and before Paul quoted this, there was a poem called The Paradox that Epimedes had written this in. The problem with this statement is Epimedes is a Cretan. So if a Cretan is standing there telling you all Cretans are liars, can you believe him? Because if he's lying when he tells you, then the statement is false. But if he's telling you the truth when he says it and he's a Cretan, what do you do with that statement? This kind of paradox is called vicious circularity. It means no matter what way you turn this gem, there's another problem that exists. Another way to say it is that it's infinite regress. It doesn't matter what angle you approach it, you have to stop and think about it like a puzzle. And usually in this scenario, it's because the statements were not meant to be considered completely equal and uh, factual. They were meant to make you think about what someone was saying, to stop and say it. You, you ever have an uh, expression in English where we say, uh, dude, that's cool. And we don't mean that it lacks temperature and we're not calling them a cowboy. It's just our expression. Well, there are other kinds in the Word that we'll get to that are based more on bias. These are the ones that Jesus used the most. Have you ever heard the joke that somebody's driving down the road with their son? Eric and Judah are driving down the road and a train hits us here at Highway 90 and Eric dies. Judah's later in the hospital and the surgeon says, My son! I can't operate on my son! And it's a bit of a riddle. Well, how could that be? Because it's generally assumed that surgeons are men. Not rightly so. But because that is a bias, it makes that a difficult thing for somebody to figure out that it could have been Jennifer that was the surgeon. You will see in Jesus' speech, He is challenging popular bias constantly and putting them in a situation to have to wonder who really is blind. Who really does see? Who really does have possessions? Who really is doing God's will? And he challenges their bias through these uses. Would you like to see a few? Yes. Come on then, turn to John 9. Tell me when you're there. Two of you are following me. That's very encouraging. <laughs> Getting there. When I hear pages stop, I'll start. How about that? I got born again in 1993. From the moment that Jesus spoke to me, He answered my prayer. It was, Lord, change me. There was a fundamental understanding in my life that was not very complex. It was simply, I am wrong and I need help. This is the beginning of wisdom, saints. The thing that will inoculate us from God moving in our presence more than anything else is the assumption that we see clearly. 
If rather you start from a different place and say, Lord, I understand that I really need some spiritual eyes. I need help. This seems to get you everywhere with God. This is at the root of Jesus' interaction with the religious establishment in His day, no matter what is happening. And you will find that with whores, with tax collectors, with the poor, with lepers, with everybody that He meets that does not have a social standing and does not have a prideful view of their own life, He is as gentle as the day is long. With those who seemed righteous, He hits them with both hands repeatedly. It is amazing. Obviously, that's a metaphor. Jesus didn't beat anybody up. Right? Right? Okay, good. So in John 9, what has happened is a man that was blind from birth was healed. Now, that's a pretty amazing miracle. We're not talking about praying for Aunt Susie's sister's cousin's dog who seems a little under the weather. We're talking about a man that was born blind. Everybody knew it. He had been this way for many, many years. And now he's been healed. And the religious establishment is having a problem with this because it challenges one of their basic assumptions. They've already decided that Jesus is not a good guy because he is not conformed to their image of what they think he ought to be. They begin to debate back and forth. The blind man absolutely wins the debate. He says, look, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. But it surprises me that God listened to him if he's a sinner. I do know this. I was blind, and now I see. And they had no answer for him, so they just insulted him. They said, you were steeped in sin from birth, right? Which, of course, was wrong. Jesus finds this man later, and we pick up with this verse. It's verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. He had been thrown out of a synagogue. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. So much for faith healing, right? So much for his invested trust, his invested faith in understanding all the theology of Jesus. He didn't know who the Son of Man was. Very popular, extremely popular messianic term of the day. And he, he's not getting it. Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. If you've ever wondered, did Jesus answer directly the question, Is he the Christ? This is one of the many places that in the Jewish culture, this is an absolute direct answer. He is the Christ. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. What an amazing thing. A man who was actually blind but admits it, Jesus says, sees clearly. Other people who see just fine and claim they can see just fine, Jesus calls blind. How can you see but be blind? Sight has to do with our perception of the world around us, particularly our environment. We won't get into the scientific side of what sight is, but every bit of it is your perception of light bouncing off different surfaces. This man said rightly, I don't know who the Son of Man is, but if you tell me, I will believe. I will trust your perception. Real sight in the Bible. Real sight is when man admits his weakness and says, Lord, 
what should I perceive about this situation? Mm. How many times does something look like a conspiracy at work? How many times were you just sure that person was against you? Mm. How many times have we wrongly perceived <laughs> our situation? But God never wrongly perceives a situation. So true sight is to lean on Him. These men claimed that their perception was accurate, even in the face of overwhelming evidence that it was inaccurate. Would they be better off if they couldn't see? But this is a little bit like when somebody said it's better to be silent and thoughtful than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. <laughs> the very fact that they are claiming they're the ones that can see shows, illustrates as they verbalize their perception just how blind they really are. But the man who says, no, I don't get it. I need help. He's the one who ends up with perfect 2020 spiritual vision. This is a paradox, but you learn from these kind of lessons. Because when somebody says something like, you can see, but you're blind, you're like, what? And how many times did Jesus say something like, if you have ears that hear? Well, what good would they be if they didn't? You know? And how is it exactly that you circumcise a heart without killing yourself? See, these are all statements that make you go, what? I thought circumcision was a completely different area of the body. Uh, they're supposed to make you stop and think about what is said and wonder, what can I glean from this? Another example might be along this same line of thought, a few in the Pauline letters. We're going to go through those, then we're going to get to a chapter in Mark and we'll stay there the rest of the time. So suffer it with me that you have to turn through a few of the Pauline letters. Go to the book of Galatians. If you're looking for Galatians, it'll be to the right of where you are. There. Oh, that brother's fast. He's got one of those new speed Bibles. Harry Potter gets a new broom every year in those movies. Steve gets a new Bible. At least I've heard that because pastors don't watch movies, right? This one does. I enjoy it. But it's up to you whether your own kids watch it. Because I'm already getting the... Try not to go off on that subject. Y'all ready for uh, Galatians 2? Ready. Look at the 20th verse. Tell me about this one. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. That's an interesting thing, since he's actually writing when he says that, huh? How many of you walk out here to the Shaolin Kung Fu studio over there and say, Hey guys! Good news! I'm no longer alive! That's a statement that makes you go, Hmm. But Christ lives in me. The life I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Our life, our plan, our design for things has all died. We have yielded to completely accepted His will as opposed to ours. Now these are common among Christians that we understand this. But can you imagine hearing it for the very first time? Hey Darren, you want to go have some coffee? While we're walking to have coffee. By the way, I'm dead. <laughs> What's that? Because you seem to be walking. Well, there's kind of this dualistic nature in me. And I've died to one, but I'm alive to the other. This is really what our testimony is. Your testimony was meant to make someone stop and go, Huh. It's true for him. I wonder if that's true for me. I'd never considered that before. You find this all over the Word. Turn to 2 Corinthians. I'll leave you there for a little while. In 2 Corinthians, you'll be in the 12th chapter. Tell me when you're there. 
overturned. There. 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 Oh, there we go, Casey. In there. In there. So-and-so who loves to be first. <laughs> oh, I'm teasing you, brother. Second Corinthians 12, we're going to be in the 10th verse. Listen to how this is said. As soon as I can find it. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Are you kidding me? How is it that weakness makes you strong. Is that a statement that would make you stop and go, what? Yeah. I mean, one time, a Roman official was hearing Paul speak like this, and he said, Paul, your great learning has driven you quite mad. <laughs> but is Paul mad? Is he insane here? What's he talking about? Because of that dualistic nature in him, the life that he's died to and the life that he's now living, in Christ, when he is weak, it gives Jesus' plan, his will in Paul's life, more strength. There's less of Paul to resist God's will. There's less of him fighting against the good that he knows that he should do. Did you know that good works have been prepared in advance for you to do? Yes. So what keeps us from doing them? Everything else you want to do! I mean... Isn't that right? Yes. Have you ever found out that with a teenager you have their perfect obedience as long as you're telling them to do something they want to do? Yes. But what happens when you tell them to clean the car? What happens when you tell them that uh, that hair is just not going to work? What happens when you tell them, I would like to see more of your body covered than is presently covered? then there's resistance, right? Because what our lives are about is a clash of two wills. The clash of God's will and the clash of self-governance. And if mankind is nothing else, he's fiercely independent. And this is a bad thing for Christians. So when we are weak in that sense, we become stronger in a more fulfilled heavenly sense. Y'all all understand this, I know. But imagine the first time you encounter a statement that says, when I'm weak, I'm strong. Somebody made it a lyric of a song not that many years ago. He said, when I'm on my knees, it's not because I'm weak. I'm getting stronger. Talking about prayer. In the kingdom, this makes us more than conquerors. This means that although Suzanne might not be able to out-arm wrestle me, I mean, that's still in debate. <laughs> she can absolutely out-pray me. She can absolutely move more powerfully in the will of God. What a great leveling factor. This is better than when somebody invented the handgun in the uh, Old West. huh? All men become equal before God in this way. This means that Matthew can pray with the same power that Cody can pray with. That nobody is esteemed higher than somebody else. In fact, your weakness can be to your benefit. What a strange backwards but right way to view the world. Things that make you go, hmm. I thought we'd look at one more, then we're going to jump into our text. How about that for a preamble? Go ahead and go to 2 Corinthians 6. When I first began to learn seriously about Jesus, the man that was teaching me had come off of a mission field. Uh, he was very comfortable in the country that he was in, but his visas got canceled because God wanted him in the United States so that he could raise up guys like Matthew and I. During that time in his life, he had less than at any other time before 
or sense. He was poor in a very literal sense. What a humbling thing for a man in his 40s that had been very accomplished in life to have to depend upon teenagers tithing. But he put himself in that situation. He made himself poor so that he could invest something in us. He made us rich at the same time. That is an amazing thing. And the first time I realized it, it was reading this scripture. I was sitting in the man's living room reading this while he was changing a cassette tape because it was the third hour that he had been teaching and I was still in his house. And uh, I read this. And this paradox, this profound contradiction in the scripture made me stop and think about what was being done for me. Hear how Paul says this. It's uh, in the 6th chapter, and we'll start in the 8th verse. Through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. That's pretty hard to have those two coexist, huh? Poor yet making many rich, having nothing yet possessing everything. There are some people guided by the church at Rome, misguided by the church at Rome, that to achieve godliness, what they did is they went out and sold everything that they had. And we're going to cover that scripture in a little while. Because having nothing, they thought, made them possess everything. No, that's not it at all. It's when you exchange one for the other. It's when nothing that you have is more important than having the very thing that God wants. It's when God's will is greater than your will. And this man gave up consistently on a daily basis whatever was to his credit for the benefit of someone else. If pedigree was something that could be esteemed, he would lay it aside and meet in the home of a Gentile. If riches were something that could be esteemed, he would lay it aside for the poor at Jerusalem. If his own physical health was something that you could take pride in, he would gladly take a beating that someone else might benefit. He possessed nothing that others would say was important, and yet he possessed everything that was really important. If somebody tells you, I have nothing and yet I possess everything, what should that make you do? It should make you stop and think about their way of life. How is it that somebody can have contentment with godliness, consider a great gain, and they don't have anything? We live in a culture that everything from your watch to the emblem on the front of your car to the size of your yard says something about you. Well, what happens when we completely divest ourselves of any of those interests and our sole interest is possessing that which God wants? His tangible influence in our life. His kingdom. When His sphere of influence stretches from the heavens down into your life, well then you possess everything that He wants you to have. How cool is that? And to quote Billy Graham, God never said He had to drive a Volkswagen. And I'm thankful. I mean, it's not about poverty. It's about doing exactly what He wants you to do. Could these statements make you stop and go, hmm? How many times has he asked you to give something up and there was great deliberation in your life? <coughs> I've noticed something. Uh, I'm very proud of my parents as we're moving. Occasionally something is nicked. Something might get a little scratched. I don't know. Like 
Maybe a precious Arnois. <laughs> What's really important about this sermon example <laughs> is that we're all objects of mercy. Yes, yes, we are. It really didn't affect them. It's just stuff. It's just stuff. But how many times have you seen a scratch on somebody's belongings? This church moves a lot. I mean, we buy bigger trailers every few months. A scratch on somebody's belonging that not only ruined their day, it ruined half their life. You know, they went out in the backyard and buried the peace and mourned it. Prayed that it would be resurrected at the day that Jesus returned. Obviously, I'm being absurd, but you know that we hear a scripture that says a man's life is not about the abundance of his possessions, and yet they have a way of creeping right into our heart and becoming part of the fabric of our lives, don't they? How many of you, when you got born again, gave away everything? You, I mean, your music, it may not be holy, I don't know, let's throw it away. These clothes... Someone might lust when looking at these chicken necks for arms. So we're going to wear longer sleeves. My sunglasses make me feel carnal. So we throw them away. And then you spend the next how many ever years regaining all of it. I knew a man that gave away a complete collection of all of the Beatles albums in pristine collection. What was a sacrifice for the Lord in the beginning, 20 years later was like, how could I be so stupid? How could I be so stupid? You know? We could have sold it and given the money to the poor. No. Things have a way of doing that to us. The question is not, did you sell everything when you got born again? It's every day. Every day. Are you willing to lay down whatever he wants that you might take up? Something that he wants for you. Rather than go through all of these in the Scripture, I thought we would turn to a single chapter in the Bible. I mean, we could read a chapter together, right? right. Surely our attention spans are not so short that we couldn't do a chapter together. I didn't say it. Paul Youngie chose the one that said it, but he was asked, kind of caught off guard, what's the difference between Christians in Korea and Christians in the States? He said, well, Christians in Korea are more... Oh, this is televised, isn't it? Uh, America has very nice churches. And he's going to say they're more serious. I don't want that testimony to be true about us. I want to take his word, his teaching seriously. I don't want you to define my holiness by things I don't do. Eric doesn't do this. Well, good for him. Neither do Mormons. Eric doesn't do this. Well, I know a moral guy down the street that is an atheist, and he doesn't do that either. What makes you holy are the things that you do. So in our lives, when we look at this, have you ever been in a business seminar, like maybe for Franklin Covey or somebody, you know, you got your first little book, you're going to prioritize lists, and man, it's wonderful for a day or two, and then you're back to post-it notes. Yeah. So you're sitting there and they say, hey, make a list, you know, write down your priorities in life. And somewhere, always in this list of priorities, comes your marriage, comes your kids, your career, those kind of things, right? What if there was a chapter in the Bible that contained paradox after paradox after paradox, and it addressed in order your marriage, your kids, your career, and your way of life in general? Wouldn't that be worth reading? Well, thank you for John Mark, because he wrote it down. He wrote it down. Let's go to the Mark. We'll be in the 10th chapter. A couple of you are there. (laughs) 
I always leave those verses until I'm there. This gives me some reasonable chance of catching up to you guys. We're going to be in the first verse. How about that? Jesus begins this discussion speaking about marriage. Now, as we get into this, I'm going to read you a few verses that I need to tell you about uh, the context. Because reading Scripture out of context, not having an idea for the culture, the audience, those kind of things, can often give you a misunderstanding. Anybody ever been a new Christian and played Scripture roulette? Lord, I need you to speak to me. So, you open the Bible, and whatever you first glance at, now, granted, he can do that. He's done it many times in my life. But what do you do when you open it and it says, what you do, do quickly. Okay, well, I don't get that. <laughs> Judas went out and hung himself. <laughs> Jesus wept. <laughs> Moses went outside and dug a hole. <laughs> None of these things uh, really are going to speak to your life situation unless you're in a very unique situation, right? <laughs> What's going on in this chapter, we'll get to. Starting the first verse. Jesus then left the place, that place, and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to Him, and as was His custom, He taught them. You know why it was His custom? He was a normal first century rabbi who, when I say normal, please, I'm not taking away from His divinity. I mean He operated like a normal first century rabbi. It was his custom to teach everywhere he went. Look, a woman sowing seed. Let me tell you how that relates to the kingdom of God. Look, they're fishing. Let me tell you how that relates to the kingdom of God. My, my, my. We're at a funeral. Let's do something about that. They were rabbis. They taught about their daily existence. This kind of uh, sage on a stage, you sit and soak, didn't exist in ancient Israel. I wish it didn't exist here. I just can't figure out how to travel with each of you during your day. So we're meeting here as many times as we can. Again, the crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? The Greek tense here, and you know, I believe that these were probably written down in Hebrew first, but in any case, what we have in the Greek tense, it's more of implied that they kept asking him that they were persistent about this. That they're persistent in asking this question and there's an underlying reason. One of the greatest debates in Jesus' day comes from the two major houses of Pharisees. The first is the house of Hillel. Jesus quotes Hillel many, many times throughout the Scripture. The second is the house of Shammah. And one of the things that was facing ancient Israel was a climbing divorce rate. Completely unlike America where everyone is monogamous Everyone is making life commitments that are never broken. We completely honor our vows, right? No, probably not. This is not unique to Israel. Every problem Israel has, you'll see reflected everywhere else. They're God's people. He uses them to teach the nations. So what these two houses are arguing about is what does it mean to say something is indecent and a divorce is permitted? This comes from Deuteronomy 24.1, and I rarely lie when I preach, so you can trust me. That way you can stay right here. It says that if a man marries a young virgin and finds something indecent about her so that he is displeased with her, he may give her a certificate of divorce. Very strange how all that power was given to a man. So these two houses were completely divided over what the word indecent meant. Shama is usually on the wrong side of the argument. But this one, he says, indecent, 
can only be that she lied about uh, her virginity, that she had been involved in ways that you didn't know about. Hillel took a much, much more lenient approach. She said, mm -hmm. indecent can be that you really don't like the way she cooks. <laughs> indecent can be that she is no longer pleasing to you for whatever reason. Uh, very sad, huh? But let me ask you something. Those stars that you pay money to see, which interpretation do you think that they uh, cling to? Hmm. So this is why they keep asking. They want to know, who's right? Who's right? We have two teachers. We have various opinions. Are the Baptists right or are the Methodists right? This is the thing. What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. Jesus replied, But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Now it's good to do a comparative study here, and we don't have time to do that. When you read this in each of the Gospels, you find out more details. Like, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? There are clarifying statements that are made in the other Gospels. But I want you to notice something Jesus did not do. Jesus did not hear these words and say, I've heard and I side with Shema. He didn't conform to any of the existing arguments. In other words, there was a pre-tribulation view, a mid-tribulation view, and an amillennialist view, post-tribulation. And Jesus said, look, the answer's in the Word. And He ignored all of the views. Isn't that amazing? In what way did He begin to answer the question? He really doesn't answer it. He simply says, in the beginning, the two became one. What a paradox. Which one of you who teach mathematics would like to explain how two becomes one? And under, under any circumstances, it's a statement that is designed to make you stop and go, what is marriage really about? Hmm. Marriage is not about me finding something indecent about my spouse or my spouse finding something indecent about me. Marriage is about us coming together in a unified way that requires selflessness, esteeming each other higher, and sharing the same fate. Period. This was something that they contemplated to the point that his disciples asked him questions about this pretty regularly. What's the key to a strong marriage? Well, it's found in Ephesians 4. Y'all can stay here. I'll read it to you. Unless you want to go. That's okay, too. I like that you like the Word. Because I lied. It was Ephesians 5. <laughs> <laughs> Ephesians 5, the 22nd verse. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, His body, of which He is the Savior. Now as Christ submits... I'm sorry, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the Word 
cleansing her by the washing of water through the word. You remember the question was, can a man put his wife away for something indecent? What Christianity teaches is that the man is supposed to make decent the wife by washing her with the word. And it's not his responsibility, her. I'll, just to do that for her, it's her responsibility to do it for him. He goes on to say, I'm telling you a profound mystery. I'm really talking about Christ in the church. And yet the church still wants to know, do we permit divorce? I'm going to say, let's just focus on our marriages and praise God for restoration. Huh? Anybody in here experience wonderful restoration on some level of your life? Yes. Amen. Well, don't speak against it. Anybody in here experience something painful? Yes. Yeah. Let's not do it again. Amen? Can we say amen to that? So amen. be that. What makes a strong marriage? Washing each other with the Word. Esteeming each other's needs higher. The paradox was intended to say, how can two become one? You'll never get two halves to merge if all they do is point at the other's indecencies. And isn't that really what all serious marital rifts come down to? I don't love her anymore. He doesn't love me anymore. He's gained so much weight right in his thighs since we got married. <laughs> I hear the same things over and over and over. They're, they're just cold towards me. Really? Well, how often are you washing each other with the Word? you still pray together? How much time are you spending serving one another? Or is poker night the most important thing in your life? Honey, would you rather be shooting Bambi than spending some time with your wife? Wife, would you rather be reading Cosmopolitan in a beauty salon than sitting with your husband? The answer to all these problems is that two become one. A profound paradox, but the answer to marriage. Now, if you don't know how two become one, just like you don't know how a man that can see can be considered blind, and a man that can't see can be considered to have perfect sight, what do you do? You say, Lord, help me with this perception. I don't know how to do this. And this is the beginning of wisdom and friends. It'll save your marriage. Anybody in here ever been benefited by sitting and going over the Word with your pastor? Yes. yes. Yeah. Imagine what would happen if on a daily basis you sat with your pastor's pastor. See, Jesus, He has the answer for all of our problems. He really does. And the heart of it is found in God's Word, not some strange man's interpretation. Amen? Amen? Okay, so we move on from marriage. What's the next most important thing in people's life? Family. Children. <coughs> Children's. Starting in the 15th, 13th verse. Now that we have so many Louisiana transplants in here, half my material is killed. I can't make fun of Louisiana anymore because there could be a riot and there's not enough Texans in here to protect me. And God help us if LSU plays any of the Texas schools. I don't know what, there's going to be a civil war in the church. <laughs> But we know who would win, right? <laughs> so the 13th verse. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have Him touch them. How about that? But the disciples rebuked them. Do you mean that the followers of Jesus don't always get His will right? And I was hurt in church. Yeah, well, there's cancer in bodies all the time. You know, it needs to get healed. Healed or cut out. One or the other is only two ways to deal with it. There is no cure. You cut it out or God has to heal it. One or the other. When God's body does not act like God, just like a cell not doing what it was designed to do in the body, His disciples rebuked the children. 
They missed that whole millstone teaching. It's already occurred in the chronology, in the synoptic gospels, it's already occurred. Hmm. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. Uh, the King Eric version would be that he was... No, we're not going to give you that one. He was mad. <laughs> he was mad. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. He's talking to adults saying the kids are the ones that are right, not you. The kingdom is where God's sphere of influence is. And when it stretches out into human beings, His kingdom has extended. And He's saying it's easier for God to influence a child and the kingdom be present in them than you adults. He took the children in His arms and put His hands on them. Well, what are some of the things that makes it easier for the kingdom to be present in a child? You notice how receptive kids are at certain ages? Their minds are like sponges. That can be a very bad thing because their mouths are like tape recorders. <laughs> yes. Yes. Do you know what Uncle Eric did by the fire while we were camping? <laughs> well, Uncle Eric lets us do this. And then, 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 then. Their minds are like sponges. This means that when God gives a child something and it gets ingrained in them, they don't have to fight through all the minutia of garbage that would be in their mind about why it won't work. They, they're willing to accept it. How about their acceptance of their status in life? How many four-year-olds do you know that think, well, I want people to call me Mr. <laughs> and those three letters past my name mean Dr. Four-year-olds. <laughs> and when you address me, you will address me as Sir, yes, sir. <laughs> Kids have no concern for social status. What do they care? Are you nice to me? Can I be nice to you? Will you hurt me? Is it safe to be around you? What if the body of Christ was more like children? How about the other one? Maybe the, the biggest one. Children are completely dependent upon mom and dad for their care. So they learn to trust that mom and dad will provide for them. That mom and dad will protect them. That mom and dad have their best interest at heart. What if the church was more like children in that way. What if we believed 100% of the time that God would provide for us? What if we actually believed as evidenced in our actions that God was protecting us 100% of the time? What if everything that He wrote to us, we accepted in our daily life as He has a plan to prosper us and is not interested in us being squashed? Wouldn't that be awesome? Because the kingdom is given to people with those kind of views. That means it's easier for His influence to extend from the heavens down onto the earth and through your life to other people if this is our view, if this is the way that we perceive the world. In fact, Ephesians 4.22 says, Be completely humble. Be gentle. Be patient. Let your love be evident to everybody. These are the way that kids are before the corrupted. Now, if you raise your children like this, it'll teach them about God, and it will teach you about God. How many of you have ever sat and explained something to your child and ended up understanding it better afterwards? I know some people 
that teach that struggled with a subject in school, but when they sat down to learn to teach it to someone else, their understanding grew leaps and bounds. You want a strong marriage? You be selfless. You do whatever it takes for there to be unity, not counting each other's sins against each other. You want to be a good parent? Teach your, parent, teach your children to trust you like you trust your God. And both of you will be great. Come on, saints. Yes. That's good preaching. That's good. <clears throat> you know what's better than good preaching? Good living. Mm. So, you want to get to your next paradox? Yes. In life, after you cover your marriage, after you cover your family, what comes next? Career. <laughs> Career, which is how you get finances. Yeah. Uh, I, somebody asked me one time if I was money motivated. Because uh, I was always in sales. Y'all know that. By the way, a great paradox is when somebody asks a salesman, are you lying? <laughs> if I was, what would think, make you think the next statement would be true? It's kind of like that whole Cretan thing. Right. But salesmen are not Cretans. Salesmen are godly people like Matthew in the workplace, <laughs> like Gabe in the workplace, who provide a quality service. Salesmen are not the enemy. <laughs> There's a little subliminal, not so subliminal thing. Okay? You ready? So, uh, yeah. Yeah, and used car salesmen are not bad people. That's how I got into ministry. Yeah, that's right. Amen. The car business is a good business, right? We've got people in here supported by it. Just like Halliburton's not evil. The oil field's a good thing. I think I better get back to the Word, huh? Okay, so we're in the 17th verse. As Jesus started on His way, a man ran up to Him and fell on His knees before Him. That is a pretty fantastic start, isn't it? Running up to Jesus and falling on your knees. Pretty good start. We're going to read about the only guy that I can think of in all of the Scripture that was worse off after he left Jesus than before he met Him. This poor young man starts very good, but after he talks with Jesus, seems like the mirror of the word revealed something in his heart he didn't know what was that he didn't know was there. He ran up to Jesus. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. What a strange statement. Yeah. Now, number one, rabbis didn't allow their students to call them good because it went against the teachings of the Tanakh that said that a teacher should be humble, right? But that's not really what Jesus is getting at. He says, is it just flattery or do you really understand who I am? I think it was just flattery. But regardless, what a paradox. Why do you call me good? Only God alone is good. And who's talking to him? God. That's right. Wouldn't it be awesome? Wouldn't this be a whole different story if he said, I called you good because you are the Messiah. The fullness of the Godhead is found in your life. I can see it in the actions. His kingdom is manifest in you. Wouldn't that be an awesome story? But there's an obstacle in his life, something that would keep him from seeing that. It's hard to see the true God if there's an idol between you and him. An idol of any kind. This is why in worship we offer our chains to God. This is why we want to throw away any addictions and friends. There are things that are more addictive than crack and alcohol. Things that are less socially obvious. What's your finger do on the button to the remote of your TV? There's one. What does your mouse click on? They're all kind of addictive things in this world. An idol keeps us from seeing God for who He really is because it's between us and God. It obscures our vision of Him. 
You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these things that I've kept since I was a boy. Well, good. No harm, no foul. Why'd you come ask? If you're completely righteous right now, why are you asking? Why do you need my validation? You know how many times I get asked a question that nobody cares the answer to? There's a way to display someone's knowledge. A way that they are just trying to show me that they're okay. Really? Then why did you feel the need to bring it up? It's not really stealing gas to use our company card in my wife's car, is it? No, and it's not to go stick a hose down your neighbor's tank and siphon it out either. And the tooth fairy still leaving money under your pillow. Teacher, he declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. Self-righteousness is also an idol. The entire Jewish nation did not fall under this any more than the entire nation of Christians here falls under it. But you need to understand it is a powerful temptation to think you're right and everyone else is wrong. If you thought you were wrong, you'd change it, right? Let's go ahead and admit that many times in our lives we're wrong about something because we simply don't know yet. That means you have to be willing to hear what someone else has to say about a subject so you can compare what you already know and are certain of with what's being presented. Old wineskins tend to crack when wine's poured in them because the kingdom always expands. It always ferments. It always takes you further than you are presently. It's expanding like our universe. It's why we can't put God in a box. It's why we can't define in 14 points what you have to believe about Him. Although we could name a hundred points that are completely indisputable. It's beside the point. Our lives are supposed to be progressive. This guy says, I've got it right. Hey, good teacher, you're good, I'm good. We're all good, right? At this, uh, let's see. Jesus looked at him and loved him. How many times did your parents ever bend you over a knee, beat the fire out of you and say, I did this because I love you? <laughs> Right? Ever have a two-handed fraternity paddle that somebody found in a house? Y'all have blessed childhood. <laughs> now I'm doing this because I love you and it hurts me more than it hurts you. Dude, that's not true, son. I'm glad it hurts you more than me. That's why I'm the one doing the punishment. If it hurt me more than you, I wouldn't do it. I'm teasing. I understand the rationale behind that. It is a bit of a paradox, but I understand it. He looks at him and loves him. In other words, what Jesus is about to say to him, no matter how harsh, no matter how difficult, no matter how unpalatable it is, what he says is an action of love. One thing you lack, he said. By the way, Luke 18, 18 doesn't just say he's a rich man. It says he was a ruler, like a politician. Somebody important, somebody of stature, somebody whose character got them into office. Somebody who needed to be viewed as above reproach. I'm so happy I was not elected by you. I am. I am so happy not to work for you. If I had to worry about what you thought about me at every moment of the day, I'd be as crooked as rivers and politicians. I really would. But all I really have to worry about is what does my king think about my life? Because I'm supposed to lead you not by eloquence and words, 
I'm supposed to lead you by the content of my character, and that can only be displayed in my life, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And there may be more bad and ugly in your estimation than good, but it is what it is, and this is where God's called us. And I'm content with that, because I don't have to answer to anybody but Him and those to whom I have submitted myself. What do you think it is like for a pastor who comes in and he has to meet attendance requirements? He has to meet building projections. He has to meet offering projections. How do you expect this man to hear from God and tell you what God says regardless of the consequence? That's right. Those churches don't want that. They just want pretty buildings and seats full. What is it that you sell out the kingdom for? I don't want to sell it out. Certainly not for an appearance. This man has got an idol in his life, a problem, and Jesus is going to address it. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. He didn't say this to everybody. He said it to this man. You know, at the time in my life that I first read this, if I had to go sell everything I had, it would have amounted to $30, $40. Did I? I was 18 years old. I just graduated from high school. I didn't own anything. I've heard stories about people saying, I gave up everything to follow Jesus. I knew you. You didn't have anything. <laughs> 20 years ago, I gave up everything to follow Jesus. What do you have now? Is it more or less than when you started? The question is not, would you give up everything 20 years ago? Would you give it all up right now? This moment. That's right. God says, go to Brazil. What do you do this moment? Yes. Figure out how to put pontoons on that Ford and float it. <laughs> At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to the disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. How hard is it for rich people to experience God's influence flowing through their life in a tangible way because there's something blocking it. What I have. What do people want from me? How do I make it grow? How do I... Me, 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 me. It's easy for the poor to be rich in faith. They're already in a humble position. But when you're proud, when you have so much, I tell you, think back on your life. The happiest Christmases you ever had, you had the least. And now it's comical. I gave Jennifer a sewing machine. She gave me a flannel shirt and a hammer, and it was the best Christmas of our lives. Everything's just gotten more complex since then. She still got the sewing machine. I still got the hammer. The flannel shirt didn't fit anymore. <laughs> they shrink over time, apparently. <laughs> Jesus looked around and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at His words. Isn't it amazing that when we look at what looks to be a perfect picture like an elect a congressman, and they've got wealth, and everybody likes them, and they're maybe raising some orphans right here in Texas and doing all kinds of good things. And Jesus said they still lack something. They're not worthy of His kingdom. They're worthy of building the kingdoms of men. We esteem them as great! But God says they're not fit to enter my kingdom. There's a stumbling block there. Isn't that shocking to us sometimes? The disciples were amazed at His words. But Yeshua said again, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? You remember earlier He said, unless... 
You are like a child. You can't enter the kingdom. A big slap in their face, right? Because they're not children. They're adults. And now he's calling them children. It's a way of saying, I know this is hard for you to understand. It goes against everything that you hold dear. But you need to become like a child and receive what I'm about to tell you. That's humbling in itself, huh? Somebody say, oh, 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 what you're doing is this. What I want you to do is this. Shut up. i got something to show you here. Pretend you're a kid. All right, if you were three and I told you this, what would you do? That's what Jesus is doing right here when he calls them children. It's not an ugly thing. He's reminding them of the previous teaching. Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Not Ben, I've seen the eye of the needles. There's a whole teaching there. It's not the point. Watch. The disciples were even more amazed. And he said to each other, Who then can be saved? Isn't that an amazing question? Who then can be saved? Because in American Christianity, we say, well, if they call on Jesus, then they're saved. Right? No fruit. No progression in the kingdom. No growth. Just, I mean, who are we to question their salvation? These guys look at it another way. <laughs> they have the, the more of the mode of prove you're saved uh, instead of let's just assume you're saved. Which do you think would be more fruitful in somebody's life? Prove you're saved? Yes. Or let's assume you're saved? I had a football coach that used to write that word on the board. It's amazing how he was able to break it down. Master of English language, the word assume. But I'm not remembering it right now. You look at... Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible. He's saying to enter the kingdom is not possible by a man's strength. Not possible by a man's wisdom. His career, his reputation, it would require him to receive a revelation from God. Peter said to him, we have left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Here's the paradox that has to do with your career. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. The things that others do to get ahead in this world, in their workplaces, in their sphere of influence, their social groups, causes them to be last in God's eyes. The things that believers do to get ahead with God puts us last in the world's eyes. Don't grieve that people don't esteem you highly. If they do, something might be wrong. Jesus said, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. 1 Corinthians 1, 18-20 teach about the wisdom of this world becoming foolishness. While those of us who are foolish will become wise in God's eyes. One of the great paradoxes in the Scriptures to say, many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. You're supposed to stop and go, hmm, whose eyes am I first in? Whose eyes am I last in? This is a way to get introspective. It's a way to examine your heart and find out whether or not you measure up in God's eyes or whether you're working to measure up in men's eyes. Have you ever stopped to wonder why you want something that you want? 
Is it because you want to wash someone else's feet? Or is it because you want your own feet washed? Foot washing example is a great one. There are certain things that you need. There are other things that it's awesome and it's a blessing that we have. But we do need to examine why we wanted something. We need to understand, do we want the promotion because we're deriving a certain amount of our self-worth from it? How others view us has become important to us? Or do we want the promotion because we really are going to do something more with it? It's a stepping stone. It's, it's an area of growth. I started to tell you this earlier. I was asked early in my sales career, Eric, are you money motivated? I said, no, I am lack of money motivated. <laughs> when I have enough money, I suddenly become very unmotivated. I said, Eric, you did so good this month. Do you know that if you work hard, you might be able to make fifteen or $20,000 in a month? What would you do with that much money? I was in a big room full of salesmen, and I was born again. I said, I'd take about six months off. <laughs> it's like deflating a balloon. <laughs> I was shocked they didn't like that answer. <laughs> Money is just a means to an end in the kingdom. It's just part of living. You really any more happy when you have more stuff? Whose eyes are you first in and whose eyes are you last in? Don't exchange the glory of God or something worthless. Don't do it. Don't do it. Let me give you your last paradox because we preached about an hour and I get hungry. Uh, <laughs> I have no real concern for your posterior sections. or I'm just hungry. Verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. He, again, again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. What all came before the, the rising? Lots of suffering. It's through many trials and tribulations that we enter the kingdom. Don't you ever forget that. If somebody has sold you a bed of roses, that is not Christianity. It is not Christianity. The saving gospel message is not that God wants you rich. It's really not. The saving gospel message is, I must decrease so that He can increase. And if you're willing to do that, you'll never lack what you need. Never. But that's not based on greed. It's based on a selflessness. Verse 35, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, Teacher, they said, We want you to do for us whatever we ask. What a question. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, Let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left hand in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? This is a Jewish idiom. It means, are you capable of sustaining the suffering that I'm about to for the glory of God? They say, oh, baptism, sure, we can do it. No problem. Saw it the other day. My buddy got sprinkled and the other one got dumped. Which would you like? <laughs> we can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink. 
and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. One of them got his head cut off. The other they couldn't kill. They boiled him in oil. They put him on a, a, a island making idols, all kind of things. But he was baptized with the same baptism Jesus was. Suffering before glory. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Saints, what seats have been prepared for you? Ephesians 2, 8-10 says that you have been saved by grace through your faith. That this was not of yourselves. You don't want anybody to boast. In order that God's workmanship might be displayed in you, by doing the good works He prepared in advance for you to do. Yes. What are they? Where are they? Well, God wants me to be a prophet to the nations. Not a prophet to my local church. Not a prophet to my own family. But it's got to be something great. I can just feel it. God wants me to be an evangelist of world renown. I'll get the 50 mile an hour haircut, the silver suit, and the Lincoln Continental, baby! What has he been teaching? How is it that you become great? What is it that is a place that's been prepared for you? You do it by doing exactly what he's called you to do. And where does something like that start? When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. That's right! We know that, Lord! That's why we're asking to be on your left and your right! We want to be the ones in control! We want the power! Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For not even the Son of Man came to be served, but to serve. And to give His life as a ransom for many. There is something profound in the Gospel. To be great, you must become the least. What's been prepared in advance for you to do? The question is, in what way can you humble yourself for someone else's benefit? That makes you great in God's eyes, first in His eyes. Maybe last in everybody else's. But would you rather the favor of the Father or the fleeting favor of the brothers? Yeah. I want the Father. Yeah. I've seen what the brothers do. They'll throw you in a hole. <laughs> They'll back over you with the Dolly cement truck. <laughs> beep, beep. Those of you that are taking notes, we're going to finish with this. I want to put the paradoxes together for you. Starting at the beginning, there were eight of them that I gave you today. Here's your lessons. Our natural perception is faulty. We need to let God tell us what we see. He determines our perception. Number two, our will is to be considered dead when it, is, when it contradicts His will. Easy. When there's a difference of opinion, God's right. That's what makes Him right. That's what makes Him God. Number three, this seeming weakness actually makes us strong even more than conquerors. Number four, we may appear to other people to have nothing, but in reality, we will possess everything that is important. Number five, 
These are the marriage, the children, the careers, and the manner of life. Our marriages will be strong because they are based on a selfless unity. Our children will be strong because we will teach them to trust God like they trust us, and we will do the same. Saints, we will become like children without becoming childish. There's another statement that make you go, hmm. Our careers will be strong because we will be first in God's eyes. Our manner of life will be sound because we will do what has been prepared in advance for us to do as servants of God and men, resulting in the ransom of many lives. When God's church does what it's supposed to do, people get saved. I have been in systems where we handed out rules. I've been in systems where we had code of conduct. I find it much better to just teach you who you are in Christ and then let Him work out the rest. Mm -hmm. Some of you can do some things that others are not free to do. I'm nobody to judge your freedom, but I'll tell you this. Your life must be kingdom first or it's worthless. The abundant life is when you put His kingdom first and everything else falls in line. Y'all stand to your feet. We'll pray. And then after we pray, we will eat. Yeah. Somebody want to give a testimony? I once ate, and it was good. And I hope to do it again. Thank you, mighty God, for your revealed word. Lord, I thank you that you are not so simple that we understand you at first glance. In fact, mighty God, you seem so far beyond understanding at times. It could be discouraging, but you sent us your Spirit to reveal your character through your Word, to show us even the very deep things of God. So we're not discouraged. Rather, mighty God, we marvel at your greatness. We marvel at the immense nature of our God. You are beyond grasping except that you help us to grasp you because you love us. And I thank you for that. Lord, we pray that these doctrines, these teachings, these revelations would rule our lives. That they would not be lip service only, but that they would motivate the very thoughts in our heart and begin to show up in our actions. In the name of Jesus we pray.